is Bethany Temple, and the handsome individual that was leading worship was my husband, Daryl. Uh, <laughs> I, I think he's handsome, but... Um, <laughs> um, but just want to give you guys a little bit of background, actually, before we've been working our way this year through the Book of Acts. And I say working our way is because we either, between special services, guests, or just things that we feel like the Holy Spirit's been leading us to do, sometimes we deviate from it. So we've, um, basically, we started in January, and it's basically our goal by December to be done with the Book of Acts. <laughs> so we pick it up here every once in a while. So we are going to pick up Book of Acts today, actually, Acts 13 and 14. But I just want to give anybody that's here that doesn't have a reference and understanding of, number one, why we're studying the Book of Acts and the importance of it. Um, I actually would encourage anybody here, if you're not right now invested in a book of the Bible that you're reading, I encourage you, pick up the book of Acts and read the book of Acts. And the reason that I say that is it is the birthing of the New Testament church. So what it is to us, it's the blueprint of what the New Testament church is to be. And so basically, we should be looking at it as the model for how we do church. But we also, any place that we as the Western church don't line up with what the book of Acts looks like, we should be standing in a posture of really crying out for the fullness that's seen in the book of Acts. But also, oftentimes, um, we as people, and it's not just spiritual, it's natural as well, even if you think about in the realm of like physical fitness, dieting, body image, those things, we usually want the results of something without going the process that it takes to get there. And it often happens spiritually as well. We, we read the book of Acts, and we read signs, wonders, miracles, entire cities experiencing revival. And we, I, I don't think there's a Christian under the sun that doesn't say, I want to see that, or I want to live in that. that. That's what God's intended. But there's a huge gap between being people that desire something and people that are, are willing to take the necessary and appropriate steps to see desire fulfilled. There's a huge difference. There's dreamers, and there's those that see their dreams fulfilled. And so the gap in between that is the wrestling, and even the place of hunger, and the place of positioning our lives, no matter what the cost, in order to see it fulfilled. So the reason that we're looking at Book of Acts is exactly that. We just started this church plant in September, late September of this past year. And we really felt like to take the first um, season of this church plant and say, this is our model this is our mandate. This is who we want to be before the Lord. This is who the Lord has intended us to be. So we're going to hold it up as a mirror. And we're going to say, God, anywhere that we are not walking as the intended New Testament church, align us rightly and challenge us and provoke us. And we want to see the fulfillment of it. Um, so basically, for those of you that are here today, we're picking up on Acts 13. And just to give you basically the beginning of Acts, in short... What's been established is, is multiple there, times there's been citywide revivals that have taken place. That literally under the preaching of the gospel, thousands are saved. 3,000, 5,000 added. Other times it just references the whole city came under conviction. So that's the account of the book of Acts really. And what we have found by studying the sermons of the book of Acts, Peter, Stephen, and then actually this time we're studying Paul's sermon. Basically you can break Acts down to three messages that are preached by three extraordinary men of God. And if you think about it this way, what they preach is ultimately what we as the church are called to preach. They basically lay out the gospel. And this is what I love actually about all of their messages if you study them. They literally are either quoting the Old Testament quoting psalms, they're like giving Bible and giving Jesus. 
They're not necessarily expounding and, and going into greater detail. They're giving the facts of the reality of the man, Jesus Christ. And oftentimes when they're preaching to the Jews, they're literally charging the Jews as being guilty as crucifying the Messiah. And then basically, the work of the Holy Spirit is done. It says that the, believe, the hearers were cut to the heart, and there was the conversion of souls. And so the extraordinary thing is, is that oftentimes I think that in the body of Christ, we're kind of looking for something new. We're look, kind of looking for the new greatest revelation or trend, or the new big, you know, all of those kind of things. When these people were experiencing citywide revival, mass outpouring of the Holy Spirit, salvation, baptism of the Holy Spirit... I mean, they were seeing the fullness of it, and they literally did not move on to anything necessarily greater or more profound. They went back to Old Testament, and they basically revealed through the scripture, this is who Jesus is. He was prophesied that he was, he is, and he is to come. And it was in the beauty of the simplicity of Jesus that souls were saved. But it was also in the beauty of the simplicity of Jesus that rioting, persecution, and stonings happened. It was one of two things. And that's actually what we're going to see as we look at Acts 13 and 14 today is kind of that dividing that comes to a city when the word of the Lord is preached. Um, But if you want to open to Acts 13, um, for those of you, um, trying to figure out if I should. Basically what you have right here is you have, uh, prior to this, it was the upper room experience of praying and fasting, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the birthing of the New Testament church, and now we're picking up on the first missionary journey. That basically Paul and Barnabas, he's actually referred to initially as Saul. Um, it's interesting that we actually pick up this, this story, he's referred to as Saul, and kind of halfway through, he then takes on his, his new name of Saul. Uh, I'm sorry, Paul. Um, But this is the first missionary journey. Um, So Acts 13. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, it actually goes to the list of them, but for the sake of time, I'm actually not going to go through all in detail. I'm going to jump down to verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called, uh, called them. Two things we're going to highlight, actually, before we go forward into the rest of 13 and 14. Number one, it's very, very common in biblical writing that, and it's funny because I was thinking about this, and when I was studying this, I was like, oh, I definitely don't do that. They, they list the person of prominence first. So the prominent individual or the prominent leader is listed first, and then kind of the, the, the subsequent people afterwards. I mean, what kind of pressure is that when you're writing an email or when you're writing a letter to have to, like, think through prominent, you know, like, oh, I actually thought about it. I was like, oh, my gosh, I hope and nobody in our culture thinks that way because I probably offend people all the time. Like, I was just thinking how cultures are so, you know what I mean? Like, my husband's at the bottom of the list. Oops. <laughs> you know, like, more like, <laughs> that's just not how we do it. But in biblical writing, we're actually going to find that it starts out saying Barnabas and Saul, and it, they're referenced as Barnabas and Saul, and really Barnabas only almost being um, the superior, and then actually Saul following. But then we actually watch, there's a role reversal and a shift. And it's actually when, when Saul becomes Paul and he takes his leadership position, and then from that point on, he, they're referred to as Paul and Barnabas um, after that point. But what we find is it says that um, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. We're actually just going to stop here. And this word minister, 
I just want to take a few minutes. Because basically what we find over and over and over in the book of Acts is that the posture of the New Testament church was they were found in the place of prayer and fasting. This word minister literally means to wait upon the Lord. So when you think of some of you in your own even private vocation, you might even feel a cry in your heart of thinking, how, like, what can I do that would bless the Lord? What can I do? There's almost like a desire in your heart to please him. That desire in your heart to please the Lord, obviously scripture is very clear that obeying him pleases him. But I think what even precedes obedience is literally, the scripture is very clear, even in the Old Testament, that when the word was used, to, like when the priests in the Old Testament, the call in Leviticus to, to the priesthood, it was to minister to the Lord literally meant to wait upon him. So when you think about it this way, when you give your time to the Lord in simply waiting upon him, it ministers to his heart. It blesses his heart. You're moving the heart of God by simply waiting upon him. See, the thing is, all of us in this room, we understand the value of time. I mean, you think about it. Somebody that's not really important to you, when they, you know, want a five-hour appointment or those kind of things, you find yourself sitting there going, I have things I could be doing, I could be accomplishing, all of those things. It speaks of what is of value. But then, isn't it true when you find yourself with your close friend, your spouse, you get lost with time because in that place, they are of the utmost importance to you. And you actually, at the end of the day, can find yourself thinking, oh my gosh, I wasted so much time. But it was the place that your heart found pleasure, and therefore you were willing to sow time because there was joy in that place. It's the same thing. The Lord, the the supreme thing in our lives. There's some of us in the room that are thinking, "I, I need to give this to the Lord. I need to give this up. I need to, I oftentimes, when I take on a posture of prayer and fasting, yes, I fast food. But the supreme area that I go after when I'm on a season of prayer and fasting is my time. I'm saying, what can I carve out? Whether it's in the morning hours, to be honest, sometimes if I'm in an extended 21 or 40 day fast, I literally will put aside like even more social things that I could be doing or would even like to be doing. But just going, the only place I can find time in my calendar is to not go to this event would bring me pleasure. But to carve out time and basically say, Lord, you are the priority of my life. I'm making time. I'm making space for you. And I can guarantee any one of you in the room that are struggling with besetting sins, any one of you that think, I need to give this to the Lord and I just can't give it up, or I know this is an area of weakness or a stronghold or an addiction or even just something that you know that you love more than the Lord, those kind of things that we know in our life that are vices, I guarantee that instead of focusing so hard and fast on that one thing and getting rid of that one thing, if you work on the area of time, of saying, where can I find more time for you in my day? Where can I come before you, sit before you? And hear me, I understand, not all of us have five hours. When I used to live at the house of prayer, when I was single, wasn't a wife, wasn't a mom, was developing a ministry, I used to spend from 5 a.m. to noon in this room every day. Literally doing that, opening my Bible and waiting on the Lord. <laughs> and I, I mean, it's, it's glorious, and it's heaven, and it's marvelous, but most of us cannot spend five hours waiting on the Lord. I guarantee, I'm going to say this to you, there's some times where literally my husband will just take my son out for a walk, so I know it's going to be 30 minutes. 
I got 30 minutes. I look at my house, I pan it and think, wow, I could do a really quick cleanup, make the house spotless by the time they get back. I look at my list of emails that I'm supposed to be responding to, my list of phone calls that I'm supposed to be getting back to that day. I go through all of my things and I literally will just go, I get 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30. And I, even if I don't have a passage of scripture that I want to study or even something on my heart, I literally will go into my office, shut the door and just kneel at my prayer chair and go, I just have 30 minutes to settle my heart before you. 30 minutes I have all to myself that I can do anything. Everything else I can catch up on later. I can do it in the midst of my craziness and my busyness. But I have 30 minutes right now. And I, 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 I can't even tell you the number of times that 30 minutes, even if you just have 15, even if you just have 15, it will change your entire day. It Honestly, it will bring you into a place of peace. It will give you more of an eternal perspective where the lens that you're judging and viewing and decision-making, all of those things. You know, sometimes we wonder why patterns and things in our life aren't changing. And sometimes it's, I'm going to be honest with you, it's really not for us to do in our own strength. It's just simply for us to make time and space and say 15, 30 minutes, whatever it is that you may have or that you can even, I used to, I used to be um, a, full-time, a full-time nanny for several children And I used to, in the midst of that, be very determined to still fast and keep a very fasted lifestyle. And honestly, let's just be real. When you're arriving at work at 8 in the morning, there till 6 o'clock at night, chasing around bazillions, at that time it was six kids, um, you know, you're tired, you're exhausted, you're depleted, you're doing all their laundry and their cleaning and their cooking and (laughs) all of that crammed into a short amount of time during that season of my life, and I know it sounds very minuscule, but some of you actually can do this in the season of your life, I devoted to the Lord that I would take a Daniel stand of prayer. And what that was is I said three times a day, I don't have hours upon hours. I'm going to be honest with you, my heart was to develop a prayer life, but when I got home in the evening, as soon as I'd close my eyes to pray, I'd be snoring. I mean, as awful, you'd think, oh, if you just love Jesus, can't you tarry one hour? Yeah, well, I'm snoring. I can't help it. I'm sorry. I drifted. (laughs) But honestly, in that season of my life, as funny as it sounds, I would literally go into the bathroom of where I was nannying. The bathroom, of all places. I mean, you could do this at work. You could, and I would just literally, it was my, my awareness that three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening, I would just go into the bathroom. I would kneel at the toilet. <laughs> that was my, my spot. I just thought, Lord, five minutes. I'm going to honor you for five minutes. I'm going to give you my undivided attention. I'm going to fix my eyes on you again. I want to fix my emotions. Hear me. We're to live John 15 in a place of continual abiding. I'm not saying it takes going into the bathroom and kneeling down, but for me, it took that amount of intentionality to kind of get me back. To kind of, okay, for the second half of my day, I'm running around with these six kids, you know. But literally, it would take that amount of intentionality for my heart to once again get rooted and grounded, to even come into fellowship with the Spirit of God. And it would change the latter half of my day, and then again, I would, I would at the end of the day, finish as well. But I just encourage you, I mean, to, to make some kind of a... Even if you feel as though you don't have the grace to like get up 30 minutes earlier in the morning... I I challenge you, when you wake up in the morning, even before you get out of the bed, even before your feet touch the ground, take just a few minutes to have conversation with the Lord. Just to say, I dedicate my day to you. My time is yours. I mean, I'll be honest with you. My prayers aren't so much, I dedicate my day to you. I literally say, Jesus, come disrupt my whole life. (laughs) You know, I'm looking for my ordinary days to get turned upside down and for God to encounter me in the midst of my busyness. 
which is what he desires to do. So when we find Book of Acts, we literally find... They, if you wonder why we're called the Justice House of Prayer, and even as far as a church, like why we haven't come up with a, like a flashy church name that we you know, can put for Sundays, honestly, the posture of the place of prayer, when we look at the New Testament church, anything else that we do, whether it's outreach in Harvard Square, whether it's ministering to the homeless, whether it's adopting babies, or anything else that we do from this place, it has to come from that place of developing a lifestyle and a culture of worship and prayer. And that is what the book of Acts was. So we find them in this place. It says that they were ministering to the Lord and fasted in the Holy Spirit. The other thing that you need to understand, the posture of ministering to the Lord was their vocation and their culture, but also the posture of fasting. Paul actually said it this way. He said, in fastings often. See, fasting was not an abnormal New Testament practice. It was literally the normalcy of their their Christian rhythm, their Christian life and community. It was part of the rhythm of their life was the place of fasting. And to truly be healthy people, it actually needs to be part of our spiritual disciplines. I mean, honestly, fasting for the Christian, to posture our heart, basically to say, God, I'm inclining my ear to hear from you. I'm posturing my spirit. I I ask that you would tenderize my spirit in the place of fasting that I can hear you more clearly. Sensitize my spirit to you. That literally should be as normal for us as it is for us to brush our teeth in the morning and the evening. It's a discipline. It's our hygiene. It's what we do to be healthy. It's what we do to maintain a healthy mouth. It's, It's no different with fasting. In order for us to... Abe likes that comment. <laughs> My dentist, right? <laughs> He's grinning from ear to ear. <laughs> but no, it's true. It is, it, is, it is a discipline that it's not so much about... When we neglect it is actually when we have decay and rot and we have to go in and do intervention, even in our spiritual life. It's, it's in the place of the discipline of the maintenance of sustaining our heart before the Lord and posturing our heart before the Lord in the place of fasting. You'll actually, I I think almost probably six times already in the book of Acts is actually where we've seen this place of fasting as the regular rhythm of their life. Um, So they were separated and it was from the place of prayer and fasting. And it's actually interesting because if you jump down to verse three, three, it says, then having fasted. So after the Holy Spirit spoke, literally he said, separate to me, Saul. uh, Actually, Barnabas came first, right? (laughs) Barnabas and Saul. And then it was after that point that they heard the Holy Spirit that their response, their response to hearing the Holy Spirit was, then having fasted and prayed, so they fasted and prayed again, and then they laid hands on them that they, they would be sent away. So we actually see, I mean, oftentimes we're the kind of people that when the Holy Spirit speaks, we actually want to move out and run and almost accomplish what the Holy Spirit has said. But the model of the New Testament church here was the Holy Spirit spoke, And then once again, they postured themselves in prayer and fasting. And when you study, like, New Testament theology regarding the setting apart of leaders or the commissioning of leaders, it often was joined with prayer and fasting because they were praying for the endorsement of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting because they didn't assume that just because the Holy Spirit said go, that the endorsement would be there. They then took a season of prayer and fasting, praying for the endorsement of the Holy Spirit upon these sons who were about to be sent out as the first missionaries. Extraordinary. Um, Actually, before we move on, I was going to move on to verse 5, but for those of you in the room that may not have, I I know that I referenced as far as the Old Testament, as far as the priesthood of the Old Testament, 
for those of you that may not have a context for Old and New Testament, just to take a couple minutes, and I think it even will help in understanding House of Prayer and why we take the posture that we do, and even in the future are going to um, aggressively look to build a more consistent um, praying community. But basically the understanding, for those of you that don't know, um, in Leviticus is actually where the Lord was speaking to Moses. And he was speaking about the priesthood, that the priesthood would be instituted in the Old Testament. But what all of us in the room need to understand is that in the New Testament, we're all kings and priests. That actually the call that was upon the Old Testament priesthood and the New Testament, it's upon each and every one of us. That it's not an exclusive office, but each one of us are called to that place. And the interesting thing, actually, about the Old Testament priesthood is what they were called to do is ultimately minister before the Lord. They were set apart, and actually in the New Testament, when I was actually reading to you guys um, the, the word to minister, it actually literally means to be set apart unto what is holy. To actually give your time and your attention to what is holy. But that was the vocation of the Old Testament priesthood. So I'll give you Old Testament priesthood in like four sentences. Basically they were called and set apart. And in the tabernacle they were called to keep the fire on the altar burning continually. It was symbolic of the presence of God. That basically to tend the flame that it would never ever go out. And then if you fast forward, you actually find the sons of Levi, you can study all of this, but um, it was the Levitical order, they actually, it was under Aaron, but then if you fast forward, you actually find Samuel. This is years later, and actually there was a, a priest called Eli, and he was basically a corrupt priest. He was unclean. He was not keeping the order of the priesthood the way that it was intended. His sons were defiling. They were busy with temple prostitutes and all of these things. And it actually is said in 1 Samuel um, 3.1 that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And it says that there was no widespread revelation. That's a profound thing, that the word of the Lord was rare. And there was no widespread revelation. And then if you skip forward to 1 Samuel 3.3, it actually says, it was speaking of Samuel, that before the lamp in the tabernacle went out. But remind you, the lamp in the tabernacle was to never go out. The fire was to be continually burning before the Lord. That was actually their charge before him, was to keep the fire on the altar continually burning. In many ways, it does speak as far as New Testament house of prayer, but it does speak as far as us as individuals that as priests, even in our, our own inward life and vocation before the Lord, that it's our call to keep the fire on the altar of our heart burning before him continually. That it's our call to sustain that place of fire, which means actually nurturing it, tending it, putting wood on it, making sure that our heart remains a flame of fire before the Lord. But what it also speaks of because of New Testament, as far as all of the, the biblical precedents for house of prayer and even the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David and night and day prayer, what it speaks of is that place of the, the lamp of the Lord's presence is not to go out. And in many day, ways, we're in a very, very similar day as Samuel found himself. And for those of you that weren't, not last week, but the week before, we actually participated in something called the Call to Fall um, throughout the nation, basically. Everyone took that Sunday to really posture themselves in repentance before the Lord. Um, it was a powerful service. I still have people from within our community communicating with me as far as the things that the Lord spoke to their heart and um, just how the Lord used it in, in, in that moment and that time. But basically, if you look 
in many ways, and I, I know that we have different people here that may not have um, the same paradigm concerning some of this, but if you look at the, and I'll use it this way, at the book of Acts, the presence of God that was experienced in the book of Acts, that the supernatural really was something that was ordinary, that the place of ministering to the Lord through, through prayer and through fasting was their culture and their lifestyle. And then throughout the book of Acts, even like here in verse 2, we continually see, and the Holy Spirit said. And the Holy Spirit spoke. They were led so divinely by the Holy Spirit. Even upon the preaching of the word, that one individual stands up to a crowd of Jews and Gentiles and the whole entire crowd is converted in a day. Basically, if you look at the book of Acts and we, we hold that as our model for what we're intended to be and what the Lord desires for us to be, it could be said of us, like Samuel, that the word of the Lord is rare and that revelation is, is not found amongst us because of the lack of seeing the predominant preaching of the gospel with power, with authority, and with signs, and with wonders. It could be said of us that even as... And I'll just give you the statistic. When we were preparing for the call to fall, um, we were kind of going through different things regarding the Church of America and really the need, um, just for those, that, I want to just give context. Second Chronicles 7.14, it actually says, if the people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land. And the whole premise for what we were discussing is that the healing of our land really comes back to the posture of the church. That we will see the healing of our land if the church postures itself in, in that way and in that fa fashion of humbling ourselves before the Lord, uh, of seeking his face, of praying, and turning from our wicked ways. That oftentimes we think that in November, if we get a new president, the Lord's going to heal our land. Oftentimes we think that if we end abortion, which I believe we will see the healing of our land if we end innocent bloodshed, but we often think that somehow a law needs to change or something dramatic needs to happen in the Supreme Court or in government, which makes us all feel very powerless, makes us all feel very hopeless. But instead, the biblical remedy, even in Joel 2, to a nation in crisis, was if the church would return to the Lord. And this is actually what we see in the book of Samuel as well. We see that the, it's, it's literally saying that the word of the Lord was rare, that there was no revelation, and it says the lamp on the altar was just about to go out. It means it was dim. It was flickering. It was weak. It was not vibrant. It was not strong. It was not being tended to. And that's actually what we find in the Church of America now, is that place of stewarding the presence of God. Think about it this way. Oftentimes in our church culture, it has become about how many people you can get through the doors, how many ways that you can get the system going and get them through there and promote it and advertisement and our light show that we're going to do, all of our ways to kind of get everybody packed in there. And then it's also about as far as what else we can do to keep everybody busy. We've got we to gotta look like we're doing programs and busyness and effectiveness and momentum and organization. And we, we kind of got the whole system working. But at the end of the day... We don't really have the Peter standing up and the 3,000 being saved. We don't really have Peter walking and saying, silver and gold have I none. But what I do have, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. See, we in the Western world, we have all of the other glitz. We have actually all of the business smarts to grow church like a business. And that's actually what it becomes for us. 
But what we find in 1 Samuel, and then we also find in Acts, is that the primary vocation of the church was stewarding the presence of God. It was to minister before the Lord, to bless his heart, to please him, to move him, to do what he desires. It really was not even, the focus was not even ministry to man. It was as we minister to the Lord, as we posture ourselves in that place, ultimately what happens is the Holy Spirit comes and man is ministered to. The needs of men and women are met. It's as a natural byproduct as we posture ourselves the way that the Lord has intended us to. And that's actually what we see in 1 Samuel. So we find Eli, it's the corrupt priesthood. It's been given to uncleanness and compromise. No longer holding the standard of righteousness. That's actually what Daryl and I found when we were studying some statistics. It is actually proven statistically that in the Church of America, 50% of pastors are ensnared in pornography. Now let me just say this to you. If 50% of pastors are ensnared in, in pornography... What does that mean about our congregations throughout the country? And hear me, for every person under the sound of my voice, there is no condemnation. I'm not standing as judge, and I'm not standing to make you in any way feel condemned. But I will say we definitely take the posture of Jesus calls us to righteousness, and he's made a better way. And, that, and that's the place that we call people to. Not judging in the place of bondage, but freely declaring he desires freedom and liberty that we would be ensnared to nothing and no one. And what we do is we preach that in the place of saying, we're committed to you in the process as you pursue freedom. That, that is our portion in Christ. But it really speaks that if that is the, the, the leadership in America, if that is those that ultimately are setting an example and even have somewhat of a life in the word because that's what they're preaching on Sundays and they, they have that role, how much more for the hearts of men and women that sit in congregations? It really reveals kind of the sickness and the barrenness, and that's actually what we find in, in the days of Samuel. So here's what you find, a corrupt priesthood. And actually in 1 Samuel chapter 4, it is actually one of the darkest hours for Israel. It is one of the darkest hours for them as far as defeat with the Philistines. Uh, the, the ark of the Lord was taken from them. It was Israel's darkest hour. But this is literally what preceded Israel's darkest hour. Was the corrupt priesthood, the presence of the Lord departing from their midst. And speaking into this, for all of us to understand, Samuel literally was dedicated to the Lord from the womb. He began serving the Lord in the temple even as a child. And from that place, the Lord used Samuel to restore the priesthood. The Lord used Samuel as a prophet, and the word of the Lord was preached through Samuel. And this is what I believe. Although I, it is a very dark hour for America, and if we look at the book of Acts, we actually find ourselves in a place of angst, in a place of pain, of realizing, even Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We recognize we have utter poverty of spirit. We have utter lack. We have utter need that we stand in barrenness. But it's from that place of recognizing our need that the kingdom of God can actually be birthed. And it's from this place of Samuels, those that actually restored the purity of ministering to the Lord. Those that came with a clean hands, a clean heart, a clean conscience, I'm not saying that people don't have a past, 
And I'm not saying that we don't need the blood of Jesus to wash us. What I'm saying is those that recognize our need for him and are willing to be washed, that are willing to be cleansed, that desire doesn't mean you're already there, but you have a desire to go after the Lord. And this is what we find is that it says of Samuel that he ministered before the Lord. This is where we find, again, in the Old Testament, this call to minister before the Lord. He waited before the Lord. He actually was used to restore the presence of God. And this is what I believe as far as when we look at the book of Acts, that this is our calling, that this is our portion, and that we, what we must do is we must raise up a company of people that look at the book of Acts, and instead of closing it, of saying it's impossible, it's not for today, it's not for now, it's not for a dark city like Boston. Instead, look at the book of Acts as literally, this is what the Lord intends, this is what the Lord desires, and this is our inheritance. All he has to do is find a company of people that will come into agreement with his word. Meaning the entirety of it. Of yes, we want to see cities come under conviction, we want salvation of souls, we want healing and deliverance, but it means that we come the way that he's prescribed. We develop a life of ministering before the Lord, a vocation of fasting before him, so that our ear can be inclined, so that our heart can be postured and sensitized to hear from him. You know, uh, for those of you that know who Lou Engle is, he actually uses this kind of metaphor for prayer and fasting, that it's almost as if what you're doing is clearing a runway. Think about a plane. When it's coming in for a landing, it needs a landing strip. It has to have a good stretch of land that's been cleared and prepared so it actually can descend. It's the same thing with our hearts. It's us in the place of prayer and fasting preparing a runway, clearing the runway so he actually can descend upon our hearts. And that's the beauty of Book of Acts, is that, is that they lived in the posture of ministering before the Lord through prayer and through fasting. And that if they, we will restore that place that we'll see the restoration of the presence of God and we'll see the restoration of the fullness of the gospel in our day and in our time. Okay, so that's up to verse 3. <laughs> we kind of needed a grid for ministering to the Lord and the call of the... <laughs> and we're all sweating our heads off, so I'm just going to let you know we're ending early today. <laughs> Unless the Holy Spirit comes and, and moves sovereignly. I don't know how many of us can handle this heat in here. Uh, how are you doing? Huh? Are you sweating? I'm like, <laughs> he's like, yeah. And he came with his collared shirt on. <laughs> you look nice. <laughs> you didn't know it would be 82 in here today. No. Why is it this one going? I guess it's not. Oh, so for those of you that, that we have central air, which obviously doesn't pump up enough. <laughs> but we do have this awesome machine back here, and for some reason it's not working. So there we have it. Okay, so really quick, let's <laughs> move through this. Um, so we'll go through really quick, and then we'll just have a quiz next week. Just joking. <laughs> joking. Okay. <laughs> okay, so anyhow, they, they prayed and they fasted, they laid, laid hands on them, and they sent them away. So then actually we, we find um, Saul and Barnabas going on their first missionary journey. Uh, they arrive in Salamis. They preach the word of the Lord in the synagogues. And basically now in verse 6, you actually find a sorcerer that opposes them. So crazy story of basically as soon as they're found, there's demonic opposition. And Saul, who also is called Paul, basically this is where he comes to the forefront. 
Filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked intently at him and said, Oh, uh, this is verse 10. Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, <laughs> will you not cease perverting the straight way of the Lord? <laughs> That's going to be your line the next time. <laughs> so pretty under a spirit of witchcraft comes. There you go. That's you. That's going to be his job. <laughs> oh, oh, full of <laughs> Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease from perverting the straight way of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you. Whoa. Here, watch what happens. And you shall be blind. <laughs> Sorry. I just can't even imagine. I just... Not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him. And he went around seeking anyone to, to lead him by the hand. So how about that? Like, those that oppose the gospel, those under a spirit of divination, we all just start, and you shall be blind. There you go. I actually just want to... <laughs> I actually just want to comment. We're going to see two times, actually, in this specific thing, in the passage of Scripture, 13 and 14. But what we're going to see is two times, signs and wonders done. And this is really what I, I want you all to hear. Signs and wonders done, but that it actually does not produce salvation. That the Lord moved mightily many times through them. And that even though there was something, and actually we're going to move on to in chapter 14 where a crippled man was healed, but actually instead of there being mass salvation, there was mass persecution and they started stoning Paul. But this is what I want to say to you. Ultimately, we need to keep in mind that the greatest miracle that the Lord can do, it's, it's the transformation of the heart. It's the conversion of the soul. It's that when the eyes of the heart see who he is, never underestimate the salvation experience. Never look and think, oh, you know, I've prayed for people and I haven't seen anybody healed. And I've prayed for six or seven people and they've experienced salvation. You have witnessed the greatest miracle for a heart to behold the Lord and to turn to him. Because there's many a people that have experienced a miracle and have received a touch from the Lord, but it never converted their soul or their spirit. That it never brought them to salvation. So we actually find he strikes them blind. And then if you move on to verse 14, it says, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch, um, which we've read a lot and studied a lot about Antioch. And this is actually where you find um, Paul's message from verse 16 all the way to verse 41 is everything that Paul preached. And basically what he did is, once again, he literally gave Jewish history. That's what he did. This right here, if you're wondering about the Old Testament and you kind of want to get a lens for the, uh, Jew, the Jews of the Old Testament, read verse 16 through verse 41. You get a very clear understanding of the Jews as far as the Messiah coming to them, them rejecting the Messiah. I mean, all through their lineage as far as Christ being preached. But this right here is where Paul lays it out before them. He preaches Jesus Christ and him crucified. He lays it all out. Um, and then, hold on, let me just move ahead here. So he finishes his message, uh, and then in verse 42 it says, So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words would be preached to them the next Sabbath. So basically, you have the Gentiles. This is extraordinary. It, I mean, this is key. It wasn't even the Jews who actually, they had just heard their whole history. It was the Gentiles 
They just heard Jewish history, but yet their heart responded to the, the man Christ Jesus and the beauty of who he is. And basically they begged, come back next week. We want to hear this again. Can you come back? That's extraordinary. So basically it says, um, now when the congregation had broken up and many of the Jews and devouts who had followed Paul and Barnabas, um, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace. And then we, we go on to find the Jews basically start to oppose Paul. They start to resist Paul. They start to speak against Paul and all of his teachings. This is actually specifically what it says in verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. This is the Jews. Now, mind you, these are the religious leaders of the day. These were the, the spiritual leaders, those that were actually delegated in the vocation of teaching the law of the prophets. And now here comes Paul, and they're persecuting him. It's, it's absolutely crazy. Um, and then you actually find Paul um, and Barnabas' response in verse 46 through 47 is the response. The Gentiles glorified the word of the Lord. And, and basically from this point in verse 50, you see, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city and raised up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they expelled them. They made them leave. And they shook off their, and this is Paul and Barnabas. It says they shook off the dust from their feet. Um, and basically, at this point, now they moved on to another city. Now it happened in um, Iconium. So now we're actually going to find, we're in a new city, and we're going to find that the unbelieving Jews, already, when they get there, the Gentiles were already being stirred up, and their minds were being poisoned against Paul. Talk about opposition. Before the dude even gets there and gets to open up his mouth, already they're trying to poison the minds of people against him. I mean, what a difficult road Paul had to bear and had to walk. So this is basically his, his next place, and it actually says in verse 3 that he stayed a long time speaking boldly in the Lord, and he was bearing witness to the word of grace, and it actually says that there was great signs and great wonders that were done in that place. Now, again, this is where actually where we find the violent attempt to take his life. It says, um, in the multitude of the city, oh, sorry, let me bump ahead to verse 5. Oh, and, and when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their ruler to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe. So basically now they're moving on from city to city. Basically they preach the word, there's threats against them. So now actually they move on to Lystra and Derbe. Um, this is where we find a crippled man that's healed. The signs and the wonders go forward. And the response is in verse 19, they stoned Paul. And it actually says, if you read here in verse 19, that they thought he was dead. They drug him from the city. I see some of you see that. They drug him. People are nodding like, they drug him from the city. They thought he was dead. Paul's dead. They, so they drug him from the city. And if you look in verse uh, 19, it says, However, when the disciples gathered round him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed. Okay, so there's controversy surrounding this. Some theologians actually believe that he was dead and he was raised again. Others believe, but just mind you, what a stoning is like. I mean, it's people hurling rocks, stones, boulders at you. I mean, you get maimed, you're bleeding, crushed bones. I mean, it's, it's a gruesome process. And part of the reason that they do a stoning is to assert, assure that you're executed, to make sure that you're dead. So basically, whatever took place there, whether he was dead and he was raised from the dead, 
or whether he was just severely wounded enough for them to think that he was dead, nonetheless, it says the next day he departed. So obviously there was some kind of a supernatural restoration of his body to be able to move on from that place, because we actually find after the stoning that it says, um, then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned him. This is what I just read to you. But however, the disciples, when they gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. So now here he moves on. And then actually at that point, and just I want to recap this really quick because it basically when they go there, um, I'm just trying to see if there's one more point I need to make sure that you guys get before I... Um, so he goes on and he preaches and basically they appoint elders in that place. Um, there is a passage of scripture, I really want to find it, because he actually returned. He basically what happened was he went on his missionary journey and if you actually look at a map, he very easily could have gone a different route but it actually says that he returned. He actually went back through Lystra, back through Iconium, and back through Antioch. He actually went back through the very places that, number one of them stoned him and thought he was dead. The other had threats of stoning him and wanted to kill him, so he fled. I mean, he literally goes back through very intentionally. I mean, just in all honesty... I don't think unless something really drastically happened in my life between now and the point that I would never, ever, ever want to return to a city where I thought that the same instances could occur. But if you actually study out the passage of scripture, what it was is that there was new converts in those cities. And so he literally was going back to strengthen them everywhere that he had gone. He was going back to check on them and actually to encourage their hearts. So he talked about the boldness of a man to go back to the very cities that sought his life. Talk about being so unshakable, so unmovable, and continuing on in what the Lord, with such boldness. And this is actually what he says in verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples. That's actually why he went, was to strengthen them. Saying, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Powerful. That was his reality. He lived it, not just in theory. I can say that to all of you. We must go through many tribula tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. But honestly, what tribulations have I gone, to, gone through? I mean, when you're talking about a man that has lived through what he's lived through, the persecution, the hardship, the opposition to the preaching of the word, and for him, basically, even, and it actually says twice when he departed, they departed with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. That was their reality. So then you actually find that they made their pilgrimage back to Antioch. That's actually where they ended up. So talk about such defiance. He literally goes to the very places that tried to kill him. And then he makes his way back to Antioch. And basically what we find Antioch is, is this is their hub for where they're praying, they're fasting, the Holy Spirit's ministering to them, and they're being sent out and endorsed with power. And then they come back again to Antioch. They're praying, they're fasting, they're living in community, and from that place, the Holy Spirit comes and speaks and commissions and charges, and they're sent out with endorsement. And the word of the Lord ran swiftly throughout the land. I mean, you talk about the boldness and the authority that rested upon these men and women. And this place of Antioch, for those of you that don't know, an encouraging word to our hearts is um, when we were first, I mean, for those of you that have heard the testimony, it goes back to when I was 16 years old. If you study the history of New England as far as the call of this region to be a stepping stone for the gospel to the nations of the earth. 
that the very intended purpose and the founding purpose of Boston is that the, the gospel would go forth from this place. And it actually, Governor Winthrop actually quoted Matthew 5. He declared Boston to be a city set upon a hill and a light to all peoples. And actually, he specifically said that we were kind of a holy experiment that we were coming and we were being dedicated and covenanted to the Lord. And he basically said that if we honor God, he's going to honor us and endorse us in the nations of the earth. But he also said that if we dishonor God and we turn away from him, we will become a byword in the nations of the earth. It's this element of covenant, of how we deal with the Lord, and whether we'll actually be used to bring light and glory to the nations or whether we'll become a byword. So from this, this is kind of really what put us in a posture of faith that as we're praying for the city of Boston, that there is there was something in the heart of God. God planted something in the heart of Governor Winthrop. God impregnated that man with a vision and a dream of what Boston would be. So for us that are here praying and fasting, believing for revival, but also believing for a missions movement, that it's not just an idea that we've pulled out of the sky or some random, there is such a prophetic history and a prophetic legacy that it's actually the intended purpose of this region is that it would be used to bring light and glory to the nations of the earth. So when we're standing and praying for Boston, it's not out of our own vain imaginations. It's from the place of authority of saying, God, you put a dream in the heart of Governor Winthrop. God, you put a dream. Even Jonathan Edwards declared that from this very area, there would be an extraordinary move of prayer that would bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. John Armart literally said that he was believing for the evangelization of the world in one generation. Most of us, when we think about that, we think that is absolutely impossible. But if you look at biblical prophecy, even out of Habakkuk, it says the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth even as the waters cover the seas. That is the prophetic promise. But then you also have these decades of prophetic history of the dreams that God placed in the hearts of men and women. And ultimately, when, you, when we recount these things, it's very similar to Antioch. It was an extraordinary move of prayer in the city of Antioch. It was a community that was covenanted together to minister before the Lord. It was a community that lived for the sole purpose of sustaining the presence of God in their midst. What if we saw that in the city of Boston? That rather than building outward systems that look a certain way or look successful or look like the Western church desires to be or wants to be, all of those things, that we say our singular purpose is to steward the presence of God. And knowing that if we steward the presence of God, the presence of God is all Cambridge needs. The presence of God is all Harvard needs. The presence of God is all MIT needs. The presence of God is what every single one of those street people need. The presence of God is what those in corporate America need. The presence of God is what the intellect and the prostitute need. The presence of God is our singular need. And see, ultimately, those that gathered in Antioch, they understood that. They understood that apart from the presence of God, we have nothing. But with the presence of God, we have everything. So what if in a city like Boston, that, you know, like when I go places and, you know, in other parts of the country... Everyone shivers a little bit when, when you tell them that you're from Boston. Ooh, it's hard there, isn't it? 
Isn't it really difficult? Isn't it very staunch? It's such a dark, dark, it's the citadel of humanism and intellectualism. And, you know, they kind of go through the whole thing. But honestly, if you look scripturally, it's in the darkest of moments that the Lord likes to shine his face because it reveals who he truly is. It reveals him as the, the supreme one. It reveals him as the one that is able to conquer death, hell, and the grave, that there is nothing too difficult for him. He loves to show himself. That's what you find in Israel. It was said of Elisha, during Elisha's day that Ahab did more wickedly than every, any king that had gone before him. But yet the Lord sends Elisha in that moment in time to confront him and believe for one of the greatest revivals on Mount Carmel, the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. You find during this, these days of the priesthood of Eli, it was one of the darkest times for Israel at that time. Because as far as the captivity that they lost to the Philistines, they lost the Ark of the Lord. But it's at that moment he raises up Samuel as a prophet. It's in those places that he raises up sons and daughters. And I believe that every single one of you in this place, under the sound of my voice, regardless of what you're going through, regardless of how you view yourself, you might view yourself as defeated, as worthless, that you've missed the mark somehow. Most people walk around living in such failure as what they could have, should have done, and that they've missed their window of opportunity, or that all of the things that maybe they want to be doing and they aren't doing, all of those things aside, I believe that every individual that has gathered in this place as part of this community, that the Lord has divinely and supernaturally positioned them and orchestrated them for this hour in history because he longs to manifest his glory in the city of Boston. Amen. It's his desire. He is not intimidated by intellectualism. He is not intimidated by wealth and prestige and all of those things. What he does is he comes and he levels the playing field completely so that he can glorify himself in that place. I believe that for each and every single one of you, that the Lord has you here for a purpose and for a reason, for a destiny, and even to be a part of fulfilling the words spoken to Jonathan Edwards that Boston would be a stepping stone for the gospel to the nations of the earth. You'll be a part of fulfilling even what was spoken, that we are a city set upon a hill and a light to all peoples. That that would actually be, I, I, I'm going to tell you, I actually stand before the Lord, and I want to be the fulfillment, not just me, I mean, I want to see hundreds of thousands of young people in the city, but I want to be a part of the fulfillment of seeing the, the evangelization of the world in one generation. Do you recognize that when you read the book of Acts, that that is not impossible? I mean, even beyond that. I mean, forget, I mean, put aside even the supernatural aspect of the book of Acts. Even now with our ability to travel by air and by sea at the speed that we can, which they didn't even have at that time. When you look at the book of Acts and the way that they were sent and the way that the word of the Lord was multiplied through regions... We actually are living in a day and time that we can see the evangelization of the world in one generation. That every tribe, tongue, and people group would hear the gospel. And the crazy thing about it is you live or you've been positioned in one of the most influential cities in the nations of the earth. When it comes to regard of the thoughts and the thinking and how it is mass duplicated from here throughout the earth. As far as the school systems for several, Oliver Wendell Holmes, I know this is so far-reaching, but I, I believe he had a window into something. He had, Oliver Wendell Holmes actually said that Boston is the hub of the universe. 
And that was actually at a time when for thought we weren't, but actually in the place of thinking and thoughts being multiplied, that, that's very real, the precedence that is set from this place. But this is what I believe. It's a city of influence, but I believe that the Lord has brought each and every one of you here because he desires to use you in a place of influence. Amen. He desires to use you to manifest his glory. But this is what I'll say. That place of him manifesting his glory, it begins, just like we saw in the very first verse, they were found ministering to the Lord and fasting. Each and every single one of us, if we cultivate that place of ministering before the Lord. I'm simply saying, I don't know if I'll be in China next month or next year. I don't know if I'll be building orphanages. I might say goodbye to all of you and start orphanages somewhere. I have no idea what my future holds, but I know that for today, as long as I'm cultivating the first and primary place of ministering to the Lord, I can't go wrong. You, you cannot miss the will of the Lord. If you're setting that as the priority of your life, to minister before him, to incline your ear to hear from him, and posture your heart to receive his word. I just want to close out with this, specifically us responding, that was actually said in, in Psalms 27, that it was said to David, seek my face, and David replied, your face, O Lord, I will seek. That oftentimes that through media, entertainment, through all of the very options that we have, that we do feel the Lord tug on our heart, seek my face, and we choose a lot of other things. But just very simply, we're going to kind of do two parts, but number one, just that place of restoring the place of ministering to the Lord. Which just simply, if there's nothing flashy, no big scheme or idea, just waiting on Him. Just allowing time and space for Him. For Him to speak to your heart. I just want anyone that wants to respond specifically to us being that people that first and foremost we minister to the Lord.